Open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're going to consider a few verses out of 1 Peter, but before I read my text this morning, I want to make sure that you understand what Peter is, is describing and writing in this letter that he sends around so that we're best able to understand the text that I've chosen for us this morning. So let me point out a few things just for you to have in mind. If you'll look in verse 1, Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are scattered in various locations. Verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, that is what we would call modern-day Turkey today. So Peter is writing to believers. Now, the very first topic or theme that Peter lands on in this letter is that of salvation. Uh, It is central to everything that he's talking about, and it's central to what we're going to be considering this morning. Look in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter uh, makes salvation such a central aspect of this whole letter, but he even understands that in the midst of these believers' salvation, they are facing difficulties. Look in verse 6. In this, the this being their salvation, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials. And then we come to verse 13. Notice in verse 13, there's a therefore. Everything that Peter is about to lay out, and starting in verse 13, he's laying out several commands. All of it is in response to therefore, the salvation that Peter has been talking about previously in chapter 1. Now, the first command is in verse 13, set your hope fully. I preached on this back in March of last year. But this morning, I want us to consider the second command that Peter lays down for these believers in light of this salvation he has just reminded them of. So, let us read our text. We're going to read verses 14 through 16. And um, let me remind you, what we are reading is the very mind of God. It's written down as black words on a white page, but it is the mind of God. So you follow along, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In my role as pastor, I am privileged to walk alongside uh, people in, in, in a variety of seasons and situations in life. One of the joyous situations that I get to come alongside people with is that of a wedding Um, And I really enjoy officiating weddings, Um, probably more so than the actual ceremony. I really enjoy the premarital counseling uh, with a couple. 
<clears throat> but in my wedding homily, in my wedding message, there's a particular idea that I address. Uh, I, I try and address it in the premarital counseling also. But it's the biblical idea of two shall become one. Now, certainly, there's some mysteriousness to this concept of the two shall become one. I don't really camp out on the mysterious part. I focus on what we can understand, right? Um, but I, I, I make the point in my wedding homily that there are two aspects to this two becoming one. There's an instantaneous aspect. There is a point in the wedding service where the man and the woman are standing before me. And I am leading them in making vows together. And then, by the authority of Jesus Christ, I pronounce that they are now husband and wife. Instantaneously, the two are now one. There is a union called a marriage that has occurred there, and it is sure and done and steadfast, it is an instantaneous aspect to the two become one. But the other point that I make in my wedding homily is that there is a progressive aspect to two become one. By God's grace and by obediently following God's instructions for what a marriage should be, we can anticipate that the depth of intimacy at that instantaneous point, the oneness at that instantaneous point, 20 years down the road has progressed and is much deeper and broader than what it was originally. It is a progressive aspect to the oneness. There's an instantaneous aspect. It is done by the authority of Christ. You are pronounced as husband and wife. And then, of course, the part we all love, kiss your bride, that, you know, that's all great. But there's that instantaneous aspect where the two are one. But this progressive aspect is just as important, and it, it takes time and effort. Now, similarly, our faith is like this. God has called us to salvation. He has made a way whereby the person who is trusting in the work of Christ to forgive their sins, God has said, you are justified. It is happened. It is sure. It is complete. It is finished. But our salvation is not fully realized. It is complete, it is sure, but there's still this progressive aspect of salvation whereby God is shaping us and forming us to be more and more Christ-like. The justification of God has occurred. The sanctification of a person is occurring. Now, I bring that up and I share that because what Peter is dealing with in this text here is really focusing on back to my wedding analogy, the two should become one, it's focusing on this progressive aspect of salvation. Um, it, is, it is identifying the, the command that we're called to is to be holy. And it is, it is that that we are to do. We are to be more and more holy. 
But God has first justified us and then we cooperate with the Spirit as he brings about further sanctification in our lives. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you one sentence that I think encapsulates this key idea that Peter is driving home. Then I want to try and unpack it. There's three things I want to draw out of the text. And then finally, I've got several examples of what us obeying this command might look like in our lives. So let me give you my summary sentence here. Because God has caused us to be born again, we can act as we were originally designed. We can be holy in all our conduct. Listen to it again. Because God has caused us to be born again, we can act as we were originally designed. We can be holy in our conduct. Now, the first idea centered around this that I want to draw out of the text is this. God's call is the power behind us being holy in our conduct. Look, if you will, in the text, look at verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Well, the he here is God himself. Now, what is meant by this idea of he who called you? In, in our vocabulary, when we think of the word call, we immediately think of an electronic device that I pull out, I punch some uh, numbers on it, and all of a sudden I have a device that is electronically or digitally allowing me to communicate with somebody else. So we think of calling as a form of communication. That's not what's being conveyed here by this term, call. He who has called you. The better way to understand it is the idea of a king summoning somebody into his presence. God is summoning a person into his presence. He is calling someone. Now, if you'll look, jump over. Peter uses this language of call later on in his letter. Look over in chapter 2 of 1 Peter and look at verse 9. Verse 9 is a summary statement, but notice things that he adds to to help us further understand this concept of call. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, here it is, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, of him who summoned you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter is referencing by this term call, he's referencing salvation. We are called, we are summoned by God to salvation. God is the king and he summons us to salvation whereby our sins are forgiven, God's wrath is satisfied, and we are made alive spiritually, thereby restoring us to a relationship with our maker. Now, this same concept of salvation, back in 1 Peter, and I read it, verse 3, he uses the term born again to talk about this concept of salvation. 
I think, I think a good illustration happens in the Gospel of John. There's an example in Jesus' life to this whole idea of summoning or calling. Jesus is somewhere, and he's ministering, healing, preaching, and he gets word that his friend Lazarus has fallen ill. Jesus stays where he is, he tarries, and then after a few days, he begins to travel to where Lazarus is. And when he arrives, he's informed, Lazarus is dead. Oh, Master, if you'd only come sooner, you could have healed him. And here's what John chapter 11 says in response to that. Jesus asked them to remove the stone away from the uh, tomb. And then it says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Jesus is calling Lazarus from physical death to physical life. That's what Peter is describing here. The one who called you to salvation. He is the one who has summoned you to spiritual life. Now, here is one of the most important things we have to understand if we are rightly going to apply this text to our lives. So oftentimes, we become muddled in our thinking. Peter is not. Peter understands that God is the one who calls us to salvation. God is the one who justifies us through Christ so that we can be in right standing before God and have a relationship with Him. We are to be obedient in response to the, God, to the salvation that God has called us to, not to earn that salvation, but in response to the salvation that has been granted to us. Uh, Ephesians talks about uh, it is a gift of God. By grace, not by works, so no man can boast. We are justified by God in Christ. We are called to salvation. And, as, and, and in response to that, we are able to live obedient lives. We never live obedient lives to earn God's salvation. So oftentimes I encounter believers that have have muddled these things and they, they are uh, looking to their own effort and their own obedience to add to or complete or keep the salvation that God has called them to. Now, the first point is that it is God's call that is the power behind our ability to live holy lives. The second idea is this. Being holy requires abandoning being driven by our sinful passions. Again, go back to the text. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay, this idea of passions is the idea of a great desire or a strong desire. The the desire in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It's just a strong desire. The question is, it's a desire for what? 
You can find in the Scripture that this idea of a passion, a great desire, can be for a good thing. Uh, Paul, in his book, in the, the letter to the Philippians, is wrestling with, um, do I want to die now so that I can be with Christ, or do I want to continue living so that I can further minister? And he says this in Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire, my passion, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Well, that's an example of a good, proper, great desire or passion. But oftentimes, passion is used to reference forbidden desires, forbidden passions. Uh, jump over in 1 Peter to chapter 4 and look at uh, verse 3. Uh, Peter says in verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, when he uses the term Gentiles here, he's referencing unbelievers, those who are outside of the kingdom of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, so here it's just great desires, but it's implied because of the context that it's all forbidden things. Uh... Uh, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So here's a place where passions are referencing forbidden things. Well, what does Peter mean by passions of your former ignorance? There's a reality that sin creates deceit in us. Sin ruins us and completely wipes us of, of, of having proper knowledge and understanding. Um, and so when he talks about former ignorance, he's talking about this time before God called you to salvation where you were completely wrapped up in sin and deceit and misunderstanding or ignorance. I think one of the best ways to illustrate that is Adam and Eve. Um, you go back to Genesis uh, chapter 3. Adam and Eve, for a period of time that we do not know, has been intimately walking with, talking with, and interacting with God. And then they trust their own perspective. They're, they're tempted. They trust their own perspective, and they go, yeah, ah, this fruit's fine, and they eat it. And right after that, the Scripture talks about two things. One, they take a leaf and begin to try and use it to solve their spiritual death. And then the second one, and this one is, is certainly uh, uh, illustrative of ignorance. They hide from God. Do you, do you see how devoid of intelligence that is? I've been walking and interacting with this God. I understand his power and his omnipotence and his majesty and, and who he is. And now all of a sudden sin has occurred and I'm completely deceived and I think I can hide from this God. Now you and I can relate. We understand. We have some knowledge of who this God is and we still think we can hide from him too at times. Sin produces ignorance. So Peter is referencing here that we are to not be conformed. We are to abandon. We are to lay aside the great desires of our former ignorance, of this mindset and this thinking that we had prior to God calling us to salvation.
Don't critique me too hard for this illustration, but it makes sense in my head. I think if we think about the zombie genre, we can understand this a little bit. You know? Zombies are the walking dead. They are humans that have, for some reason whatsoever, they've become zombies and they're just stumbling around following the passions of their former ignorance. They're driven by these cravings. There's not a consciousness behind it. And I'm not a connoisseur of zombie genre, but if there's a zombie movie where all of a sudden they're restored to full health, what do you see? They abandon the passions of their former ignorance. And all of a sudden, they're once again restored to full humanity. I think the passions of our former ignorance, there's certainly lots of ways that they manifest themselves in our culture, but let me, let me read you a list of some ideas, some thinking, some phrases that I think articulate the passions of our former ignorance, the great desires of who we were before God saved us. I think this one sums it up. Follow your heart. Or how about this one? If it feels good, do it. Or this more nuanced of that same phrase, if it makes you happy, go for it. My personal favorite, the one that I encounter that I think trips up so many believers is this one. You deserve to be happy. Those are passions of our former ignorance. Where has God said you deserve to be happy? In our justified state, in the salvation that God has called us to, we have been born again and we are no longer enslaved to our passions of our former ignorance. So we are instructed, we are we are called here, we are commanded to refrain from, abandon following the passions of our former ignorance. So it is God's call that is the power that allows us to be holy. We are to refrain from, set aside the passions of our former ignorance. And then thirdly, being holy requires us to choose to act as God would act. Go back to the passage. Again, look in verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, and here is the, here is the command in this whole text. Everything else is a participle. It's a modifier helping us understand how we are to employ this verb. And here it is. You also be holy in all your conduct. You, believer, be holy in all your conduct. Now, what is this idea of holy? The scripture will have various uh, uses or ways uh, of understanding holy. In this particular place, in this context, it's the concept of pure or perfect. God is pure in all his conduct. And we are to be pure in all, all our conduct. Now, in verse 16, he references Leviticus, calling out this phrase from the Old Testament, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is pure. He is perfect. 
And we, as his creatures, are intended and designed to be holy also. And this salvation that God has provided for us has allowed us to be people who are freed from enslavement to sin and can be holy in our conduct. There's a story of a man who was digging around in a ruin in Europe somewhere. And he discovers, kind of in the mud and muck, a cup. And um, he takes the cup and he brings it home. And he begins getting all the mud and dirt off this cup. And he discovers, hey, well, this is a silver cup. Well, he keeps cleaning. He even polishes it. You know, that old silver would be marred. And he gets all the grime, all the gunk, everything off of it. And he discovers this is not just a cup. This is a silver chalice. And he notices by there's certain markings and engravings all over the cup. And he realizes that this silver chalice was made hundreds and hundreds of years ago by a master silversmith. And then he discovers, as he begins to understand all the markings around this silver chalice, that this was a very special chalice. It has engravings on it that, I, that, that identify the core values for a prestigious university. And this particular chalice was used in a ceremony that was inaugurating a president. Every few decades, there would be a new president to this prestigious university, and this chalice was what was used to inaugurate the new president. You are that chalice. You go look in Genesis. You look at what God communicated. He created you and he designed you to be his image bearer and after his likeness. Here is my best way of understanding that whole thing and it, it revolutionizes how I see myself. I am a living statue. I reflect who God is, his character, his values, what he, what he sees is important. I am a living statue designed by God to reflect who he is. Sin has come and ruined us in that state, but God has called us. He has summoned us to salvation, and he has now made it where once again we can function as we were intended and designed. We can point to his holiness. We can point to his values, in our work, in our relationships, in our recreation. All that we do, we are living statues that reflect this majestic, great, holy God that we serve. You have been freed from enslavement to sin. So you be holy in all your conduct. Refrain from the passions of your former ignorance. Choose to act holy, act pure, act like God. And we are able to do that, not because of the strength of our own flesh, but first and foremost, because of the salvation that God has summoned us to. Now, let me close by, I came up with three examples of what this you be holy in all your conduct, what it might look like in our lives in 2020. 
My pastoral exhortation to us all is that we will cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he is seeking to sanctify us and refine us and establish us back to our intended design. Well, here's three examples. You've been hurt by someone. You've been offended. And immediately, the passions of your former ignorance raise up this idea within you that you're going to exact revenge. They hurt me, I'm going to hurt them back. I'm going to hurt them back by ignoring them. Or maybe, maybe I'm going to hurt them back by smearing them. And my personal favorite is, now this smearing will look sweet and nice and considerate. Because of this salvation that God has summoned us to, I am freed from the enslavement of following the passions of my former ignorance, and I can say no. I can actually say, God has extended grace to me while I was his enemy. Oh, Holy Spirit, help me extend grace to this person that has harmed me also. Okay, a second example of what this might look like. The passions of your former ignorance well up inside you and and this desire to be thought of highly by your peers becomes consuming. And in order to be thought of a certain way by your peers, you decide, I've got to have certain things, and so I go and I live beyond the means that God has provided for me. But now I, because of this great salvation that God has summoned me to, I recognize that, and I'm able to say, Holy Spirit, help me, and I'm able to go, no, wait a minute. God has instructed me and said, be content and be thankful. I'm going to be holy in my conduct. Or here's a third example. Currently, you're experiencing some distance and conflict in your marriage. And so the passions of your former ignorance, they begin to whisper to you, you deserve to be happy. So you justify. The thought is, this person makes me happy. I deserve to be happy. I could pursue that person. I could flirt with that. No, because of being summoned by God to salvation, I'm no longer enslaved to following the passions of my former ignorance. I am able to be holy in my conduct, reflecting my maker. God is a faithful God. And I too will be faithful to the wife of my youth. That's some of the biblical phrase that God gives us about that. If you are here and you are trusting in Christ for salvation, you have been justified by God through Christ. And as a result, you are freed from enslavement to sin so that you can once again be a living statue reflecting God himself in this world. So, be holy in all your conduct. And may others see you and glorify God in heaven. 
Father, we are grateful for the salvation that you have summoned us to. We do not understand why you are so merciful and why you are so gracious, but we are the beneficiaries of that, and we say thank you, thank you for Christ. In response to this salvation that you have called us to, we long to be men and women, boys and girls, that reflect you rightly. We want, Father, through your Holy Spirit for you to give us the grace of conviction, show us where our perception or our thinking, our behavior is not in line with your holiness and give us the gift of conviction and give us the strength through your Holy Spirit to act obediently, to refrain from following the passions of our former ignorance and to be holy as you are holy. Because, Father, we want to respond to your graciousness and your salvation with obedience. We want others to see you through us. So, Father, for your name's sake, continue to work that in us in this year. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.